You're listening to Campus Killings, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, DNA ID, Zodiac Speaking, Scene of the Crime, Missing Persons, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, and Citizen Detective. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. This episode takes us to the University of Wisconsin, where a young woman's cry for help is ignored. Christine Rothschild was from an elite Chicago family, born to parents Emmanuel and Patria Rothschild. She had three sisters, Arlene, Roxanne, and Suzanne. The extremely affluent family resided in a wealthy lakefront community in Chicago. Their house was adorned with Picassos and expensive tapestries and collectibles. Emmanuel owned the patent for the parking garage arm, you know, the thing that goes up and down on most paid garages. Now, although he had been born Jewish, Emmanuel converted to Christian science as a teen. His wife, Patria, was a socialite and also a committed Christian scientist. Christine was raised to be highly educated and artistic, and she was taught from a very young age the correct way to behave in a high society. She was very close with her father, and she upheld the family's religious values. She graduated from Nicholas Sen High School, where her friends recalled her as very studious, kind, focused, quiet, and pretty soft-spoken. She was also serious. She did not smile a lot, and she wasn't really a jokester. She did not have a boyfriend, and many boys considered her to be unapproachable. And she may have viewed them as a somewhat waste of her time. Now, she was a member of the National Honor Society, and she was also student council vice president, along with being class president— editor of the school paper, and a member of the French club. She was incredibly accomplished. In fact, she graduated fourth in her high school class of just 500. Christine spent her summers modeling for high-end retailers along the Magnificent Mile in Chicago. She was described as preppy and carried herself well and exuded privilege. She enjoyed the modeling, but she didn't think that it would be a career for her. She had more serious aspirations, and she was not really vain or indulgent with her looks. She wore very little makeup, and she often dressed very modestly. Christine had planned to study journalism in college and become a publisher. Now, she would follow the news religiously and obsessively read up on all the political and international turmoil of the time. She desperately wanted to go to school on the East Coast at Vassar, but her mother refused. It was simply too far for her to go. Upon her parents' firm insistence, she matriculated at the University of Wisconsin in Madison rather than going to her dream school of Vassar. Now, the University of Wisconsin at Madison was just two hours from her home. In the early fall of 1967, during their freshman year, Christine met Linda Tomaszewski, now Linda Shulko, in the waiting room in an administrator's office. The two clicked instantly. Now, they lived in separate dorms, but they saw each other daily, and they also would attend swim meets and other campus events together. They also bonded over visiting the animals at the school zoo, attending lectures and concerts, 
seeing art shows, and walking in the Arboretum. Linda looked up to Christine in a way. Her own modest, middle-class home life seemed shabby in comparison to her friend's seemingly glamorous one. Now, Christine was very diligent with her studies. She was also a creature of habit and a very private person. She did not invite any of her doormates into her room, and while she had plenty of female friends, she was not overly social. She would go to church regularly, and even while at the University of Wisconsin, she was active in the church's campus youth group. She loved to go to church dances, and she often would drag her friends along. But overall, Christine was not very happy at the University of Wisconsin. Remember, she wanted to go to Vassar, and she had every intention of doing so after her freshman year, regardless of what her mother said. Why was she not happy? Even if she wanted to go to Vassar, uh, I guess she just overall... Did Vassar probably have the better academic program, too, I guess? Yeah, she also hated the fraternity mentality and the party school atmosphere that was present at the University of Wisconsin. That makes sense. Yeah, she would often sit alone in her room writing poetry, or she would study in the library late into the night while other students were out partying. Okay. As described by Linda, Christine was an insomniac. She smoked a lot and drank a lot of coffee. But she was also always tired and looked pale and thin. She took to walking in the early mornings, even before her 7 a.m. classes, and she would never invite anyone else to join her, although she did often join some other students on their smoke breaks. Usually after these morning walks, she would end at a local drugstore as it opened and sat at the counter for a coffee. It was reported that Christine lived on coffee, cigarettes, and canned spinach. She rarely ate in the dining hall, and she never even ate with her best friend, Linda. Uh, They would be out and Linda would order something, but Christine would just watch her eat. Linda says she also knew that Christine was taking laxatives as well. So she has an eating disorder. She clearly has an eating disorder. Um, She would often wear baggy, shapeless clothing to hide her body. Um, So this is all signs of someone with body dysmorphia and or an eating disorder. Christine's eating disorder was was not addressed by her family because Christian scientists did not seek medical assistance for such conditions. Early on Sunday afternoon on May 26, 1968, a family was in their car headed to the University of Wisconsin at Madison to let their little sons run around. Now, as they drove down Charter Street, one of the boys told his parents to stop the car because he saw someone lying under some bushes. They ignored him and drove on. Not until after they heard the news did the father call the police and report his son's words. Now, this would help the police establish a timeline for the murder that occurred early Sunday morning on May 26th. Sterling Hall was a very large, imposing brick building set atop two large sets of wide concrete steps that was punctuated by a landing. The steps were bordered on both sides by very large bushes. Now, the ground-level floor of the building had full-size windows through which people on campus could see into the classrooms and the labs inside, except there were some windows that were behind the bushes, and those windows were totally hidden by the shrubs. On the 26th, students and a lab assistant wanted to attract the attention of some classmates in the ground floor of Sterling Hall. So the lab assistant climbed the first set of exterior stairs, and on the landing, he slipped between the break and the railing, and jumped a few feet down to the dirt below. Now, this was right outside the classroom window, the ones that were hidden by the bushes, and he had intended to tap on the window to get the attention of the students. Instead, Megan, he got the shock of his life. Just inches from him, lying in the 8 by 10 patch of rain-soaked mud at the base of the bushes, was a woman lying at the spot where the window on the side of the building met the ground. 
Her head was rested on the windowsill, turned sharply right. Her eyes stared blankly from her battered and bruised face. Her body was wet from the falling rain, and there was blood everywhere. Mm. The lab assistant who discovered her, he then ran inside Sterling Hall and called the campus police. Now, what he saw that day would haunt him forever, although he did not know the young woman who was lying on the ground. Yeah, but that's traumatic. Anyone who finds someone deceased is going to be traumatized regardless of how they are discovered, I would think. Christine's face had sustained multiple blows from some hard object. She had bloody stab wounds all over her chest and her abdomen. But that wasn't all. The killer had taken the time to rip the lining out of her trench coat, which she was still wearing, and they used the lining to strangle her after she was already dead. And it was tied in a very intricate knot. After she was deceased, an expensive men's handkerchief was placed under her head and positioned on the windowsill. Oh, that's weird. It gets worse, Megan. Her own leather gloves were found shoved down her throat, and they had been placed there after death when there was really no need to silence the victim. So wait. Yeah, sorry. I'm just going to say this this sounds like posing. Yeah, someone say the symbolic nature of this gesture was that the killer wanted her silenced, punishing her perhaps for something she had said. Okay. Now, as I mentioned, it was raining that day, and Christine had a full-size black umbrella with her. The umbrella was found in the open position at her feet, and the long, large tip inserted into the ground exactly perpendicular to the earth, with all the spokes snapped around the entire circumference. Christine's blue silk hair ribbon, her stockings, and her lighter were missing but her cigarette case and her room key were positioned right next to her body, almost as if the killer was saying, I could have taken these, but I chose not to. Very staged, very methodical. Megan, there was no signs of sexual assault. And although messed up from the attack, and again, the liner was removed from her coat, Christine's clothes were still on her body. Now, some reports say that her boots were scuffed, which may have indicated a scuffle of some sort. But although Christine was found with her boots on, They had been removed and then placed back on her feet because if you recall, her stockings were removed and likely retained by the killer as a souvenir. Right. I'm putting this all together really quickly and I'm thinking there's there's posing, there's staging, there's souvenirs. Sounds like a cereal to me, but okay, I'll keep listening. Christine was also found wearing valuable jewelry, including an opal ring that her mother had given her. We could also rule out robbery as a motive at this point. Now, the killer had brazenly struck during the day, taking the time to pose his victim and lay things out as he liked, for seemingly no reason other than potentially his own enjoyment. Police Chief Ralph Hansen and several of the officers arrived by 5.30 p.m. A full forensic lab crew arrived as well, and the scene was cordoned off, measured, and photographed. But unfortunately, care was not taken to preserve shoe prints in the mud at the scene. Now, it's also unclear why it took so long, but at 7 p.m., the University Hospital ER, which was right across the street, had received a request for a doctor to step across the street to Sterling Hall. And so a doctor, along with a nurse from the hospital, came by. And after taking one look at the body behind the bushes, they advised the campus police department officers not to disturb the scene. But unfortunately, they had already stepped all over the place. Now, Christine was removed to the hospital ER to await transport to the coroner's office at this point. Amy, how did they identify who the victim was? They were able to quickly find out who she was because she had a label with her name on it sewn into her clothes. 
Uh-huh. And then they phoned her dorm. She must have also had some identification that said what dorm she lived in. Now, the RD from the dorm is the one who actually came and identified the body. Her body was sent to St. Mary's at 9 p.m. that evening. Then it was time to call Christine's parents. And now, a brief word from our sponsors. We want to take a moment to tell you a little bit about our friends over at CrimeCon. What is CrimeCon, you might ask? It's only the greatest convention in the world of true crime where thousands of people come together to discuss their favorite cases, rub elbows with some of the biggest stars in the world of true crime, and interact with some of their favorite podcasters. CrimeCon is a great place to meet people just like you who have an interest in true crime, and you get to hang out with some of the biggest names in true crime. People like Nancy Grace, Paul Holes, and Dr. Henry Lee, just to name a few. It's a three-day event, and the next one is less than a year away. CrimeCon 2023 will be in Orlando, Florida, at the World Center Marriott, September 22nd to September 24th, 2023. And listeners of Campus Killings can save 10% on your standard badges for CrimeCon 2023 when you use our promo code at checkout when you go to CrimeCon.com. That promo code is Campus Killings, all one word, no spaces. Book your trip now before spots sell out. And who knows, maybe we'll see you there in September. The autopsy was conducted at St. Mary's Hospital by Dr. Clyde Chamberlain, the Dane County Coroner. He determined that her cause of death was a single stab wound to the heart inflicted by a surgical scalpel or a similar shaped object. But his report also determined that Christine had been slaughtered in a vicious example of overkill. Megan, she had been stabbed 14 times in the chest and neck, and her killer had thrust so hard that four of her ribs broke as a sharp force blow struck her. This was all after she had been hit in the face with some hard object that shattered her jaw and would have likely knocked her out so she could not scream. And of course, as we talked about, the scene had been deliberately staged by the killer almost in an attempt to show off what he had done. Yeah, I think so. After completing the autopsy, Dr. Chamberlain reported that Christine had been killed by a, quote, psychopathic maniac. Michael Arnfeld, in his book, speaks about these meticulous and deliberate steps taken by the killer to stage the scene as he desired, despite being in a public place. He says, quote, they were steps that prolonged the killer's time spent at the scene and should have been interpreted for what they were, sexually motivated perimortem and postmortem activities that were not instrumental to the crime or part of the killer's M.O., as much as they were expressive acts of violence, helping to verify the presence of a criminal signature. Two detectives went to Chicago to interview Christine's parents and sisters, and they had also attended her funeral. The pastor reportedly said at the service, quote, death is a figment of the mortal imagination. Christine's mother felt very guilty because she had secretly relented and decided to, in fact, allow Christine to enroll at Vassar for her sophomore year, but she hadn't told her daughter yet. Now, the two parted in anger, and Christine died just days later. Now, this must have been really hard on her mother. That's terrible. And her mother would end up spiraling into a depression. She started sleeping in Christine's room and wearing her clothes. And, you know, they actually made Christine's room a shrine, and they removed nothing. Reportedly, her only solace was that Christine had not been raped. After Christine's body was removed, the University of Wisconsin Police Department officers kept the crime scene tape up. They took photos and they scoured the area with metal detectors. They were looking for the knife. 
Some officers stayed on guard to note to anyone who seemed overly interested in the area. Rumors flew and the local media and the Chicago Tribune blared salacious headlines about the slaying. They even ran a photo of Christine taken at the morgue. Oh, that's so awful when they run. Uh, That's just terrible. Remember, you know, keep in mind when this was. I think the media has come a long ways. I don't think they would do that at this point. As we've seen in other schools in the wake of a tragedy, there were swift calls for University of Wisconsin to ramp up security. The University of Wisconsin's police force was in charge of the investigation because, of course, this crime was committed on campus property. The force had 63 officers before the crime, and afterward, they hired 33 watchmen to patrol the grounds. And they also requested assistance from the FBI, the Dane County Sheriff's Office, and the Madison Police Department. Now, this murder was way beyond the investigatory abilities of the campus police, and things needed to move swiftly. June 8th was the last day of finals, and therefore students would be leaving campus, and of course this would greatly impede the investigation. Right. As you would imagine, students were frightened, and they were also permitted to leave school early, you know, not having to take exams or give final papers without penalty. It sounds similar to what happened in the University of Idaho recently. I was just thinking that as well. So all of these investigative agencies combined forces to conduct over 1,500 interviews over the next two years. Every single person who lived in the residence hall was interviewed, and so were all the members of the Christian Science Youth Group that Christine was part of. There was even a possible drug angle that was investigated, but that did not really go anywhere. Yeah, why why are they suspecting drugs? Because that would have been the last thing I would have suspected. Again, because she volunteered as a drug counselor, and she had interacted with some hardcore users in the time at school. So she was not a known drug user, but she was trying to help those who um, struggled with addiction. Which is very nice, but I don't think it has anything to do with her crime. Go ahead. And, and it didn't. The angle led nowhere. Okay. Now, investigators were looking hard for the murder weapon. They assumed it had been discarded, and they scoured the area with metal detectors, as mentioned before. And they also searched nearby lakes, and they did a grid search of the campus. It was shocking to everyone that no one came forward to say that they'd seen anything. Now, Sterling Hall was in direct view of the hospital, and the hospital personnel was at work that morning. But nobody saw anything, and the case quickly went cold. She's on one of her morning walks that she takes every day, correct? So someone has to know her walk and know her routine. Okay. Yes, you're absolutely right, Megan. All of the evidence that was gathered was sent to the FBI lab for testing. This included Christine's clothing, a pair of stained men's pants that were found in a trash basket at a nearby mall, the men's handkerchief that was found at the crime scene, the black umbrella, a rusty knife that was found in the bushes nearby, and a few other unnamed items. Testing revealed all the blood on the handkerchief and on Christine's clothing was hers and hers alone. The school would put up a $5,000 reward for information and an anonymous donor threw in another $1,000. They wanted this case solved. If you recall, Linda was her good friend who would later go on to write a book about this case. Now, she reports that in an oversight, Christine's phone records were never checked. And this was because her dorm was technically in the jurisdiction of the Madison Police Department and not the campus police. So no one would notice all of the calls from the same phone number that was made in the months leading up to the murder. The investigators spoke to Christine's friends and families, teachers, doormates, pastor, and so on. But they failed to uncover that Christine had voiced some very serious concerns in the weeks leading up to her death. She had a stalker. 
Okay, not surprised. Nope. Back to a few days before the murder, on Wednesday, May 22nd, final papers and exams loomed for students. Linda and Christine last saw each other in passing as they walked to their classes, just smiling and waving like they normally would. They had a quick hello and an exchange about attending a swim meet on that upcoming Saturday night. They agreed to call each other to firm up the plans. But on Friday the 24th, Linda spontaneously decided to go home for the weekend to study for finals away from campus. She left her friend a note under the door canceling their plans for the swim meet. The note read, quote, Chris headed home for the weekend, getting papers done. Sorry, I have to miss the swim meet tomorrow night. Call me at my parents' number if you would like. Probably saying until Monday. I will come by again on Tuesday if I don't hear from you. And of course, she did not hear from her. When Christine's body was found, the campus police found that note in Christine's room. So the officers looked up Linda in the registration records and obtained her home phone number. On Monday, May 27th, Linda's house phone rang at 2.17 a.m. Nobody wants a call at 2.17 a.m. from the police. Nope. Linda was actually awake. She was studying. She answered the phone and heard, quote, This is Officer Hendrickson of the UW Campus Police. I would like to speak to Linda Tomaszewski. She said, This is Linda. The officer said, When was the last time you saw Christine Rothschild? She told him Wednesday. He said, do you know anyone who wanted to date Christine, but she refused to date? Oddly, Linda didn't think much of this call, and she also didn't have an answer to that question. In fact, she hung up and just went back to bed, assuming that it was some lovesick guy who was interested in Christine and he was kind of playing a joke. That is so weird. But I just wanted to say um, that was also going to be one of my predictions, that this is going to be someone who is interested in Christine, but she rebuffed him or was not interested at all, paid no attention. Mm -hmm. Later that day, Linda's father turned on the radio to the news station and heard a story about a co-ed slain at the University of Wisconsin. And unfortunately, her name was Christine Rothschild. The campus initially did nothing to honor or observe the murder. There were no vigils, no prayer meetings, no tokens left at the murder site. But as I mentioned earlier, students were frightened and many went home anxious to get away from the campus. Right. The feeling by everyone was that a student had committed this crime and everyone, of course, was scared. The police never managed to uncover all of the details of Christine's final 24 hours. They did not know where she was on Saturday night. They did know, however, that on Sunday the 26th, Christine woke up around her usual 5 a.m., a time when most of her classmates were probably going to sleep after night activities. She showered first thing. Um, in the morning, she was seen headed to the bathroom. She then ate some canned spinach. A half a can was later found in her dorm room, and the pathologist determined that she had eaten approximately one hour before her death. So the timeline meshed with her last meal, and it was clear that she had died around 7 a.m. Around 6 a.m. that morning, she headed out for her walk. She was wearing black leather boots, a beige trench coat, and leather gloves. In her pocket, she had her lighter and cigarettes. And if you recall, part of her routine was to stop and smoke with some of the other students, staff, and residents in front of University Hospital. She -hmm. also brought some change for coffee and her keys. As usual, she walked down Charter Avenue around 6.45 a.m. Anyone who watched her for a few days would be familiar with these patterns of movement on Christine's part. Exactly. As you mentioned before. Mm Mm-hmm. She would have been planning to attend the 10 a.m. Sunday service at the First Church of Christ a few blocks from campus, just as she did every Sunday. She would typically arrive around 9.45 a.m., but that day, of course, she never showed up. 
It's not known how her killer lured her into the bushes at the base of Sterling Hall. She would have walked by there on her way to the church, but also probably on her early morning walk. Now, Linda and Michael, the ones who wrote books about her case, they believe that her killer either approached her or lured her to the stairs at Sterling Hall. Remember, the stairs had a landing and a gap in the railing. They then speculate that the assailant hit her in the face and Christine plunged through the gap in the railing, landing on the ground behind the bushes at the base of the building. Her boots had no wet grass or mud on them, which would also have accumulated had she walked to that spot. So it Mm -hmm. seems like she was thrown down or pushed down there rather than walk down there. That makes sense. Also, her being ambushed on the stairs and pushed down behind the bushes could also explain how how her killer managed to avoid anyone seeing. The blow in her fall would have been accomplished in mere seconds. It was not until well after Christine's murder that a prime suspect began to develop. The books on this case by both Michael Arnfeld and Linda Shulko present a pretty convincing case that her killer was a man by the name of Dr. Niels Bjorn Jorgensen Jr. We'll return after a brief word from our sponsors. So why would he be doctor? Isn't he just Neil? I don't know. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. Well, because he was a 42-year-old OBGYN resident that was hired well after the start of the fall term at University of Wisconsin. Remember that hospital that was across the street from Sterling Hall? Yes. Yes. So he was hired by Dr. Sandy Mackman after an unexpected vacancy sprung up in the resident ranks. Now, Jorgensen pulled into the campus in a red Mercedes and presented himself as a worldly, experienced, sophisticated man who could save the day. He was an imposing six foot two, and he was very thin and well-groomed. He was hired on a 90-day probationary term as a third-year resident at University Hospital. Unfortunately, Dr. Mackman did not have time to check the credentials because if he had, he would have discovered that Jorgensen's resume was either made up or greatly embellished. And after he was hired, he was immediately disliked by pretty much everyone on the medical staff. He was described as a chronic liar. He would often take credit for surgical procedures that he claimed he invented. He would brag about places he'd been and the prestigious awards that he had won. In other words, you know, he was a show-off and he was an attention seeker. He had an outsized superiority complex and he was arrogant and abrasive. People just tried to avoid him. They didn't like this man. Does not sound likable at all. Because he arrived later in the fall semester, Jorgensen was randomly assigned a roommate who occupied one room of a two-bedroom apartment. This was a man by the name of David Kwanbeck. The relationship was contentious from the start, and the two would pretty much just avoid each other. David said on two occasions he caught Jorgensen watching through his bedroom window as he was being intimate with his girlfriend. The two had a confrontation, and of course Jorgensen denied it, But then in another incident, he pointed a gun at David and David's female friend. The two fled and they did not file a police report. And then there were the photos. Oh, gosh. On his person, Jorgensen always carried photos that depicted incredibly disturbing and horrific images of the massacred body of people he said were Africans. He claimed that they were examples of Maori justice that he had witnessed during his African travels. He showed them to a janitor who recalled them distinctly. The photos were black and white scenes depicting a pile of mutilated bodies of men, women, and children. Limbs were torn off and torsos were dismembered. Jorgensen took a gleeful pride in exhibiting these photos to anyone who would look at them. 
David later told Linda that Jorgensen sat in the Memorial Library reading room trolling for blonde co-eds. He soon spotted Christine and became fixated on her. Mm-hmm. Soon he would start showing up everywhere she went. The library, the reading room, the diner, her smoking group. Jorgensen bragged to everyone that he was the best surgical resident at the hospital and he would make sure that Christine could hear this. Remember, she would often join some of the staff from the hospital on those cigarette breaks. He would often be there talking about how great he was, hoping that Christine would be impressed. But she wasn't. Well, according to Linda, Christine actually felt sorry for him. Now, not sorry enough to become friends with him. She also thought he was pretentious, arrogant and weird. Um, Linda believes wholeheartedly that he fixated on Christine partially because of her looks, but partially because he believed she was a direct descendant of the wealthy and famous Rothschild's family, which she was not. Mm. Oh, wait. Okay. Just not that family. She's she's a Rothschild, but not the same one. Okay. By April, Jorgensen had come out of the shadows and started following Christine overtly. It actually got to the point where he started showing up at the library reading room every evening when she studied there. He would even follow her outside on her study breaks to the point where she started smoking in the bathroom instead. Eventually, he did confront her directly and asked her if she had a boyfriend. When she said no, he, of course, asked her out, but she firmly declined. Mm -hmm. As we often see after that, things escalated and he started watching her through her dorm room windows. Unfortunately, her dorm room was on the first floor. Mm. One night while she was getting ready for bed, she saw a man standing motionless outside her window. She started keeping her drapes closed, but they were those gauzy types of drapes, so they didn't really obscure much. Did she report any of this? I'm just curious. Are we going to get to that? Yeah, we'll get to that in just a moment. Okay. So soon after this incident, she started to receive anonymous phone calls from a silent caller. She would just hang up. Now, Linda says that Christine shared all of this with her, but the reality is that she did not consider Jorgensen to be a danger to her. She just thought he was Mm -hmm. kind of a loser who would eventually go away. He seemed harmless to her and somewhat pathetic because he was older and so infatuated with her. By the first week in May, however, something had changed. Christine said that the phone calls had moved into the range of disturbing. According to Arnfeld's book, the caller would whisper in a harsh voice what she was wearing, what time she went to bed, and what she looked like when she was asleep. The implication was that he was constantly watching her. And letting her know. Christine didn't want to talk to Linda about him anymore and said, quote, Niels might be more than just really strange, but she never elaborated. In early May, Christine took the Greyhound bus home for a weekend in Chicago, and when she returned, she was sad and disappointed. Apparently, there had been a confrontation with her mother about transferring to Vassar and that she had a meltdown telling her mother that she hated her as she got into a taxi to depart back to school. She never found out that after she left, her father wore her mother down and had called in some favors and they were going to surprise Christine with an enrollment at Vassar. So after returning back from visiting her parents, when she was on campus on her walk, Christine encountered campus police officers, and she decided that it was time to report Jorgensen for harassing her. She told the officers that he was following her to the reading room, her dorm, joining her on smoke breaks, and coming into the drugstore when she was there, and that he was also calling her and saying scary and bizarre things. She clearly identified this individual as Dr. Niels Jorgensen. The officers recounted this conversation to Linda much later, and they recalled that Christine seemed very frightened, but they admit that neither one of them took any notes or filed a report. 
Christine had told Linda about this conversation and said she felt better that she had reported it, but unfortunately nothing was done. And Linda thinks that the officers dismissed Christine's complaints because she was so attractive. Then they felt that it was likely that she would just be someone who would attract male attention. It was also reported that Christine was so aware that she was getting stalked. She started looking into how to get her name removed from the directory, which was located in her dorm's lobby. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, she was deceased within a week. And Megan, we got to think about, you know, the time that this happened. Stalking was not really in the public consciousness. California was the first state to pass an anti-stalking law, but that was not until 1990. So at this time, the school brushed it off. And even the target, Christine, downplayed what was happening to her. We covered this um, in uh, just so an episode of Women in Crime. We were covering uh, stalking and anti-stalking laws. I think, at least I think we did, as it pertained to like Rebecca Schaefer and the murder of her, um, also mm-hmm. Dominique Dunn. When Christine was found murdered, Officer Galeb was the first to arrive on the scene. Now, he had been the rookie of the two officers to whom Christine had reported being stalked by Niels Jorgensen. He recognized Christine, but he did not say anything about her report because the experienced officer, Officer Frey, had not filed a report and he did not want to get him in trouble. So when Frey was called in to help with the situation, he too remained silent. So both of these officers knew the name that Christine had reported, but neither of them said anything at this time. Oh my gosh. Okay. And in addition, many of those at the University of Wisconsin who had serious concern about Niels Jorgensen also did not report those concerns. Michael Arnfeld calls Jorgensen a textbook psychopath who fixated on Christine and whose ego was bruised when she rejected him. Enraged, he stalked her and carefully planned his kill, including staging of the scene. According to his book, quote, What's known is that Christine's routine would have taken her directly past the steps of Sterling Hall across from Jorgensen's workplace, the hospital, where that same Sunday he was due to work the day shift. But when and why Christine ended up in the somewhat secluded Sterling Hall location where she was found later remains an unsolved mystery. He knew her routine. He knew that she would be passing Sterling Hall. That Jorgensen killed Christine is a given. The specifics of the murder are clear. The specifics of the time leading up to the murder are not. Sterling Hall would have been deserted on that fateful Sunday morning. That's still very brazen. Very brazen to do it during the daytime, which makes me think that this is not his first time attacking someone. Uh, I don't know. It's too brazen during the day. Jorgensen knew he had to act because Christine would be heading home for the summer in just two days after her last final. And within a week of the murder, as mentioned earlier, the campus cleared out for summer break. Linda's book titled Murder on the 56th Day refers to the 56th day of Jorgensen's residency. It details the decades-long investigation that Linda personally undertook into the murder of her friend. As soon as her sophomore year started, with Christine's case cold and dormant, Linda started investigating herself. She tracked down the smoking group, and she also spoke to the drugstore staff, and she spoke to many of Christine's other friends. She was shocked to discover that many of the hospital staff and the medical students were never even interviewed as potential witnesses by the police. And again, this is even though the hospital was directly across the street from where Christine was murdered. And most of the female employees on the ward where Dr. Jorgensen worked were unsettled by him, and some found him to be a sociopath. According to Linda, Jorgensen was seen on the afternoon of the day of the murder at his usual shift at the hospital, 
doing some things that only with hindsight and the knowledge that he was the killer that everyone sought seemed brazen or odd. He placed the scalpel into the hospital sterilizing machine. Now, this was normally something that was reserved for the nurses to do. According to Linda's book, quote, on three separate occasions in future years, he bragged that the hospital's autoclaves, which is a sterilizing machine, had never been checked for a murder weapon. He was truly disappointed over this lack of investigative diligence. He had planted that clue just as he had purposely arranged the handkerchief and shoved the gloves down Christine's throat. Linda believes that Jorgensen was likely disappointed that Christine's body was not discovered during his shift at the hospital right across the street. Now, she imagines that he envisioned that he would have to rush out to assist the first responders in the gruesome scene. But Christine wasn't found until after his shift ended, and he had to leave the hospital before the excitement about the murder gave him the satisfaction that he so craved. Linda would gather more and more information about the case as she graduated and finished her master's degree. After she wrote a long-form article about the unsolved case in 2006, she was contacted by David Kwanbeck, remember that was the roommate of Jorgensen, and Nurse Kay Krebs, first on the scene with Christine's body. Now remember, David was rooming with Jorgensen purely because they were assigned rooms in the same apartment. And he told Linda that Jorgensen started wearing fatigues in the days before the murder, and that he would wear them out early in the morning, and then come home and shower before his shift. On the day of the murder, May 26th, he left at 6.30 a.m. wearing fatigues and combat boots. He was pleasant and said good morning as he left. But he was home before 8 o'clock. He showered, ate, and read the paper. David says he never saw the fatigues again. David also recalled the gun incident that we discussed earlier, and he also said that Jorgensen was obsessed with coeds. He said that one time he woke in the night to find Jorgensen standing over his bed in the dark, staring at him and his female friend. However, note that Linda would learn that David only told investigators at the time that Jorgensen was just a weirdo and a loner. He left out the part about the voyeurism, the gun, and the army fatigues. It's not clear why. Yeah, okay. Nurse Krebs was working in the University Hospital ER that day, May 26th, and she recalls that around noon she saw Jorgensen walking out of the break room. It was thundering and raining outside. He muttered at her, quote, nice day for a murder, and then walked off. Oh, God. Christine had not yet been found. And now, a brief word from our sponsors. So by this point, Jorgensen was just over halfway through his probationary hiring period. If he performed well, the expectation was that he would be offered a more long-term position. But University of Wisconsin's hospital's chief of hiring, Dr. Sandy Mackman, had received a phone call from a colleague about an incident involving Jorgensen that had happened at another hospital. It was brought to his attention that Jorgensen brought a firearm into a staff meeting and threatened one of the surgeons. No report was ever filed, but Mackman's colleagues felt the need to let him know that, you know, the man they hired was potentially a threat. I can't believe nobody's filing report. I understand why people don't file reports about certain incidents, but firearms being aimed at them, that seems serious enough to file reports. That one surprises me. It also came to light from another doctor who worked with Jorgensen in St. Louis that Jorgensen had brought a rifle to a staff skit rehearsal and demanded a part. Further, some of the female OBGYN patients had complained that Jorgensen was overly inquisitive about their sexual history And the medical staff essentially just hated working with him and everyone would avoid him at all costs. 
Mm-hmm. Jorgensen was fired on May 27th, the day after the murder, and this was the 57th day of his 90-day probationary period. As you'd probably expect, Megan, he did not take it well, and he screamed at Dr. Mackman and threatened him. Jorgensen actually brought a 38 caliber revolver concealed under his white coat and momentarily pointed it at Mackman's face before withdrawing it. Jorgensen left campus immediately without informing anybody. Meanwhile, Dr. Mackman sat on this information and did not come forward to police until September 6, 1968, three months later. When Mackman finally made his report about the gun incident and about the other reports about Jorgensen, Keith Hansen had never heard that name before because, remember, those two officers never reported Christine's report. So now this is the first time that Jorgensen's name is even on anyone's radar. Right, okay. Now, more information starts emerging. There were other staff members who came forward saying that they were suspicious of Jorgensen. There was an article on September 20th, 1968, that was titled, Terrible Tempered Surgeon Sought as Murder Suspect. There were several hospital doctors who worked directly with Niels, and they believed that he was responsible for the murder. So, of course, Megan, the police now wanted to talk to Niels. What do you think the problem is? They can't find him. They could not find him. He had moved around the country from hospital to hospital, never staying anywhere very long. And even his parents allegedly did not know where he was. At one point, he had gone to Michigan to crash with an elderly relative, and he had been fired from Henry Ford Hospital after a very short residency there. Soon, he was on the move again. And the police were on his trail. Um, They flew to Michigan after a doctor there called his colleagues about Jorgensen, but Jorgensen was already interviewing in Philadelphia, where he was not offered a position, and he was headed to New York. But luckily, police were right behind him. They heard that he had interviewed at Mount Sinai in New York City, so they confronted Jorgensen at his apartment, and he agreed to come down to the NYPD station for a polygraph. However, once in the car, he feigned illness, and they agreed to drive him home as long as he agreed to return the following day. He agreed, and so they left. What do you think happened? I'm shocked that he didn't show up the following day, and he fled again. Megan, not only did he not show up, he cleaned out his apartment And just left town. This was the last time the police had had them in his sights. Amy, sorry, what do we know about Jorgensen, his background? Because I think he's going to have, I mean, basically what you described, I think he's going to have criminal history. I don't know. I I think there's going to be some stuff here. So the little we know is that Jorgensen was born on August 28th, 1925. His father was a dentist who invented, you know, some well-known dental technique. His father was widely respected and beloved. By all accounts, everything his son was not. Jorgensen had a younger brother named Soren, who unfortunately died in a diving accident, despite the fact that he was a very experienced diver. Now, Jorgensen was not present at the time of the death, but there are theories that he tampered with Soren's equipment. Now, Soren had drowned in 50 feet of water, and even Jorgensen's own mother suspected him of tampering with his brother's diving equipment. Wow. His mother actually grew to hate him and told him not to even come home for his father's funeral. So he had a very strange relationship with family. Yeah. That's the only information I have about his background for now. Okay. But I do want to talk a little bit about the Capital City killings because Christine's murder was the first in a series of eight slayings of young women associated with Madison and or the university. Now, most people believe that Christine's murder was not related to the others, but they all do remain unsolved. Wow. 
And this is between 1968 and 1982. And all of the victims were in their late teens or early 20s, similar build with similar hairstyles. And they are often referred to as the capital city killings. Briefly, these victims were Deborah Burnett, who was killed eight years after Christine in 1976. Now, she was not affiliated with the University of Wisconsin, but she had last been seen at a hotel in Madison. She was found burned in a nearby field with no cause of death to be determined. Julie Ann Hall was murdered in June of 1978 and buried in a shallow grave. She had been last seen at bars in Madison with friends. She was killed by blunt force trauma to the head. Julie Spear Snyder was found in April of 1981 in a wooded area with no cause of death to be determined. Then there was Susan Mahayu, a mentally disabled 24-year-old who vanished in December of 1979. She was later found nude outside a building in Madison in 1980. Her cause of death has not been made public. Lastly, there was Shirley Stewart, who disappeared in Madison in 1980 and was found in a wooded area near a lake in July of 1981. Her death was ruled a homicide. Most of these victims were found in wooded areas obscured by piles of brush. Investigators had feared a serial killer, but there was no firm evidence. Then Donna Mraz was attacked and stabbed to death right outside the university stadium in July of 1982. Lastly, Janet Rash was abducted on October 11, 1984. She was found by hunters in a wooded area two miles away a few days later. Michael Arnfeld concluded that Christine's death was not connected to the other capital city killings. And indeed, it seems that the staging and the posing that characterized her crime scene were a bit different, but it's still worth mentioning the other murders. Of course. Now, Linda actually had a chance to speak with Jorgensen in 2008 and with regard to a 40th anniversary memorial that was being planned in Christine's honor. He gave her a message for the University of Wisconsin detective captain who worked on the case. It read, quote, it didn't take much to outsmart you. I always had you pegged for the dumb hick cop that you are. You tried to kidnap me, referring to the New York debacle, but I had too many connections. You're too stupid to solve this case because I'm special. I'm different. It's people's fault when they get themselves killed when the barometric pressure changes. Linda and Jorgensen started talking every so often. Wait, where are they talking from? Where is he in 2008? Like, I don't, I'm I don't so know. confused. He's on the run still. I don't know. He's not apprehended. Okay. It seems like this is a taunt. I would imagine that the police were not able to track him for whatever reason, because Linda would start talking to Jorgensen very often. I mean, she would call him and try to get him to confess by deliberately misstating details about the crime or suggesting that the killer was immature or inexperienced. Jorgensen never actually admitted that he did it. He often would rose to the bait, unable to control his ego. Now, at one point, he blurted out to Linda, Miss Rothschild died because she deserved it. She was a tease and flaunted her brains and good looks. He also knew exactly how she had died. As he says, a single stab wound to her heart after extensive injury to her torso. It was also Jorgensen who suggested to Linda that the glove shoved down Christine's throat could indicate, quote, she talks too much or tells people the wrong things or exposed him. I mean, this makes me think, you know, it's possible that he saw her talking to the campus police officers and maybe he got wind of the fact that she was reporting his stalking behavior. Absolutely possible. He went on to say, quote, I think we have someone here who's got it in for women or maybe she further antagonized him. 
She may have crossed somebody in the wrong way, and these things happen. Still, though, he denied murdering Christine or even knowing her. We'll return after a brief word from our sponsors. Have you heard all the stories on the news lately about cold cases being solved by forensic genealogy? Are you fascinated by unsolved mysteries that you wish could be answered? Are you intrigued by DNA technology and its application to cold murder cases? Or do you just love a good story with a satisfying ending? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then I have the podcast for you. DNA ID is the only true crime podcast dedicated exclusively to cold cases solved by forensic genealogy. On my show, you'll get all the -the behind-the-scenes details on how these cases were brought to closure and how the victims finally got justice. Listen to DNA ID Season 3 starting January 16, 2023, wherever you get your podcasts. After the memorial service at the University of Wisconsin, which was very well attended, the University of Wisconsin Police Department came under pressure from people and who recalled Jorgensen's weird behavior at the time and the failure for them to investigate him. And at this time, Jorgensen, it was known that he was living in California, but I guess they didn't know where or maybe they didn't have enough evidence to even arrest him at this point. Okay. Uh, after a media report aired about the case, which featured Linda, Jorgensen called her and rambled for three hours talking about how he was connected to the CIA when he worked in Africa Mind you, there's no record of this. He also says he was an undercover narc in New York. He was a machine gunner in World War II. He says he shot a bear as a child. He said he owned a triple crown winning horse. He was first chair violinist in a famous orchestra and that he was the chief of surgery at some top hospital and on and on and on. He claimed to have left the University of Wisconsin due to differences of opinion he was, he said four times, a very special person. The differences of opinion, they just didn't think they should. he should work there anymore, and he did. Detec- wow. Yeah, Detective Charles Flad came out of retirement in 2007 to take on the case. He had worked on it for a short time before he had retired. He confirmed that some physical evidence, including Christine's clothing, was still stored in an evidence room at the Dane County Sheriff's Office. However, all the crime lab reports were missing. The sheriff's office had been accused of misplacing evidence in multiple unsolved murders. There had been a lot of mixed messages about what exactly had been lost in Christine's case. But Linda was told by a lead detective that some of Christine's evidence was, quote, no longer viable, whatever that may mean. In 2007, the police chief who was in charge of this cold case said that, you know, the evidence was not preserved the way that she had thought they were. I wouldn't say what the missing evidence was, but in 1968, it was deemed important enough to ship off to the FBI for testing. Remember, some of the evidence collected at the scene, according to news accounts, included bloody clothing, a bloody man's handkerchief found under a Rothschild's head, a broken black umbrella that was stabbed into the ground, and other items that could contain DNA of the killer. The FBI processed the evidence shortly after the murder, but there's no record of what was done with it after it was sent back to the sheriff's office and what the reports even said. How frustrating. As the police chief says, quote, we've been kind of asking them to look through their property room now for several years, hoping that we would find the missing items. Obviously, that didn't happen. And then with this review, since they've really gone through everything thoroughly, it doesn't look like it's going to happen. Where does that leave us now, Amy? Is is this the end of the story? Well, Niels Jorgensen died in 2013 at the age of 87, never having faced justice in this case, although it is Mm -hmm. quite clear that he is the person responsible for Christine's murder. 
Unfortunately, both of Christine's parents died in 2003 with their daughter's murder unsolved. Amy, that's really unfortunate in the end that her family was not able to get any form of justice. Um, A lot of things I saw also were very frustrating about this case and went wrong in this case with, you know, police reporting, evidence collection, other people reporting incidents. You know, if... If Jorgensen was the perpetrator here, there were just many opportunities, I think, to intercede and stop him. So I found this a little bit more frustrating. Um, There's just one other thing that I'd like to point out, and it's just um, a point of maybe policy. You know, what's the takeaway here? In no way, shape or form do we ever blame a victim. However, when you were telling me about Christine and her walks, I kept thinking same walk, same day every day. And I know you probably teach about this as well. One of the things that I teach in my classes about, you know, things that ways that we can protect ourselves is to vary up one's routine. And, you know, whether that's taking a different path, changing the times you go somewhere. Unfortunately, we we are creatures of habit. But one of the ways we can better protect ourselves if we want to and if we want to be aware of this is, you know, to vary things up a little bit and change our routines. However, again, that in no way is that blaming the victim. I just wanted to offer that as maybe one of the takeaways I also think we have come a long way with recognizing stalking behaviors and taking claims of stalking seriously. So I think this case does show us at least I don't I don't know that things would have played out the same way if this had happened today. At least I hope they wouldn't have. I agree. Thank you, Amy. Thanks for listening today, and we hope you will join us for the next episode of Campus Killings. Campus Killings is hosted by Dr. Megan Sachs and Dr. Amy Schlossberg, with research and writing by Jessica Betancourt. It's produced by Mike Morford of Abjack Entertainment. Be sure to follow Campus Killings on social media. You can find Campus Killings on Twitter with the handle at Campus Killings or on Facebook by searching for Campus Killings Podcast. Be sure to tune in every other Saturday for new episodes of Campus Killings.